Hi there, listeners. Welcome back. This is Daniel Ennis, and this is the St. Paul's Morning Report podcast. I am joined today by Stefan Voyer, Barry Casson, and our host presenter, Andrew Cochan. How's everyone doing? Good, Danny. How are you, man? I'm all right. I, the, all this COVID stuff has been depressing, it's but uh, I hope everyone's getting through it okay. Yeah. I, I think what you need is a, a garden to celebrate. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's a good idea. I, and I, I don't have quite enough space in my small apartment for a garden, but uh, great idea. You could tr- try breaking, baking bread. That's what uh, everyone's doing <laughs> these days as well. Yeah. <laughs> that's a good idea, but I feel like the amount of flour it, is, is insane <laughs> and the attention, I don't have the patience. Um, So, Andrew, thank you so much for uh, agreeing to present a case to us, to listeners, just so that you know what's happening down the road. We're going to be recording podcasts about every two weeks. So you're going to be getting a lot more uh, than we'd previously been able to provide. And we're going to be having guest presenters on each episode. Barry, me and Steph will do our best to try and solve their their tricky cases. So I'm really excited to uh, listen to what you have for us, Andrew. Uh, Well, thanks for having me on today. I'm excited to give this a go. This is a case of a 64-year-old female who's referred to internal medicine from the emergency department because of confusion and dizziness. So going a little bit more into um, the history surrounding her presentation, um, this lady has endorsed episodes of dizziness for the past three months. And in speaking to her about her dizziness, this is more of a lightheadedness, feeling like she might pass out rather than a true um, room spinning dizziness. She's never actually passed out from these episodes. She's seen a couple of different people in the community about this dizziness. Um, Her family physician thought it might just be orthostatic symptoms. I'll get back into her full history in a little bit, but she also sees an ENT in the community because of age-related hearing loss uh, and recurrent ear infections, who also felt that her symptoms were most likely in keeping with orthostasis. The reason why she came into the emergency department today is that actually one of her sons felt like she was um, more confused uh, than what is usual for her uh, to the point where she was having trouble carrying conversations. Uh, And she was also complaining that this dizziness was getting worse. In speaking to her a little bit more, she also felt a little bit chilled earlier in the day, but she denied any uh, infectious symptoms like fevers, night sweats, or weight changes. She felt a little bit nauseous, but had no vomiting or diarrhea. She had no chest pain or shortness of breath, no cough, sore throat, runny nose, no headache or neck stiffness. One thing she did endorse was increased urinary frequency. She says she's um, getting up to pee multiple times per night um, and feeling quite thirsty to the point where she's drinking about two liters of water per day. She says this has been the case for about two months, and she attributed this to the fact that she's diabetic. Um, otherwise, no visual changes, no recent surgeries or medication changes, uh, no rashes. So to tell you a little bit more about this patient's profile, she actually has quite a few um, medical conditions. Um, she has a history of hypertension, GERD. Um, she does, as I mentioned, have type 2 diabetes. It's relatively poorly controlled with an A1C of 11.7. She has a fatty liver, and then she has this history of what's described as bilateral right greater than left hearing loss and recurrent otitis media. Uh, And then she's had these presyncopal episodes uh, of uncertain etiology. Um, Medications at home are Rebeprazole for her reflux. She takes metformin and glyburide for her diabetes. 
uh, resuvastatin and amylodipine for her hypertension. She's 64. She's originally from the Philippines, but moved to Canada when she was a teenager. Um, She recently retired from working as a nurse. She lives at home with her husband and three sons. Um, She's described as previously independent with her activities of daily living and denies use of alcohol, uh, smoking, or any illicit drugs. Some medical conditions do run in the family. She has four brothers, mostly still in the Philippines, who all have diabetes and hypertension. Her mother died of AML in her 70s, and her father had a squamous cell carcinoma of the tongue in the context of smoking and drinking. So we're, we're asked to see her in the emergency department, and her initial physical exam is relatively unremarkable. Um, she's afebrile, normotensive, with a blood pressure of 131 over 62. Her heart rate's 113. Her respiratory rate's 18. She's adding 96% on room air. You know, neurologically and generally, her GCS is 15. She seems mildly confused, but is alert and oriented times three and is in no acute distress. In terms of the rest of her neurologic exam, her cranial nerves are normal. Her upper and lower extremities uh, strength sensation are intact. Um, she has no nystagmus and no uh, cerebellar symptoms or signs. Cardiovascularly, it's a relatively unremarkable exam, normal heart sounds, no murmurs or extra sounds. Her JVP is three centimeters above the sternal angle, and she has no peripheral edema. Her lungs are clear with no crackles and no wheeze. There's no clubbing. Her abdomen's soft and non-tender, um, no evidence of hepatosplenomegaly on exam, and her uh, skin and joints are unremarkable. Um, in terms of some initial blood work you get in the emergency department, her CBC is relatively unremarkable. Her white count's 8.1. She's a little anemic at 129 with a normal MCV of 94. Most significantly on her chemistry, her sodium's elevated at 158. Uh, normal potassium, normal chloride, no- normal bicarb. Um, her creatinine's 59, which is unchanged from baseline. Her current blood sugar is 6.1. Her extended electrolytes are within normal limits. INR is normal at 1.0. Her TSH is normal at 2.95. And she has some mild elevation in her liver enzymes. Her AST is 121. Her GGT is 226. ALT is normal at 42. And ALP is normal at 105. Her lipase is 115. And the rest of her blood work is relatively unremarkable. Chest x-ray done in the emergency department shows uh, linear opacities bilaterally with some uh, atelectasis, according to the radiologist. Um, but is otherwise pretty unremarkable. So maybe I'll pause there and see if you guys have any initial thoughts about this lady's presentation. Wow, that's uh, that's an interesting starting presentation. I think I went through a little bit of a, a mind journey uh, as you were you were talking about it. You start with the confusion and the dizziness and the lightheadedness, and and you know the the question that came to mind was exactly what you answered was like. Is it just lightheadedness or is it vertigo? And it's lightheadedness, way less uh, specific or way less localizing. The increase in confusion, dizziness, chills, urinary frequency, and what I would characterize as polydipsia in the context of the elevated sodium, at least the urinary frequency in polydipsia makes me think of, of some kind of diabetes insipidus. And um, so I, I'm definitely looking centrally for a cause that could account for all of these things. Um, I don't think this is a bad, this isn't necessarily a bad enough metabolic disturbance to cause um, all of the initial signs and symptoms. I, I think it's probably more a consequence than a cause. What do you guys think? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the 
polyuria, let's call it maybe. I don't know, maybe she has polyuria. My first thought was like her, maybe her diabetes is out of control. But then I wrote down diabetes insipidus next to that. And then obviously her sodium comes back pretty high. So I feel like, I mean, to have sodium that high in a cognitively normal person is pretty uncommon, you know, um, in someone who presumably has normal access to water and so on. So I, yeah, I, I mean, I, I think we're, I feel like in the next 20 minutes, we're going to be talking about diabetes insipidus and why this, why this woman without a history of head trauma and neurosurgery would have diabetes insipidus. So it's a pretty cool start. I feel like we're going to end up with a with an interesting problem, but we don't. I don't know enough about her at this point in time to hazard a, a wild guess. But my my feeling here is she's dry and she has diabetes insipidus, and and we don't know why. Is you know is the lightheadedness um, and the confusion related to her hypernatremia? Probably. I, I think those. Those things at this point, I'm I'm comfortable lumping those things together, recognizing it's a little early to do that. I I expect those things are probably going to end up related. Yeah, I, I agree with both of you. I mean, I would characterize this not by name, but I think it just looking at her, so working backwards, I think she's got free water uh, loss, and that's accounting for her hypernatremia, and whether she's got nephrogenic diabetes insipidus or central diabetes insipidus. Right now, she's not able to preserve her free water. I'd like to know just a bit more because uh, we didn't hear her orthostatic blood uh, vital signs. That'd be the first thing. And you, you mentioned she was brought in with confusion, but you describe her as being alert and oriented. And so um, I'm not sure about that. And then all these pre-syncopal episodes, we didn't get a lot of story about that. What we did hear repeatedly as she's been seen by ENT and has had hearing loss. And this has been going on for some time, I guess. And I'm not, and I'd like to hear what type of hearing loss she has and how that, when that occurred and, and is it paralleling this process, whatever this process is. And Andrew, if you don't mind adding to that list, I I was just hoping to get like a gate assessment. One of the things that I was thinking of er earlier on, Um, I was wondering like, Ooh, maybe she'll, she'll have some unusual gate with these urinary abnormalities and it'll be like NPH um, or something like that. So maybe just add that to the list of uh, Barry's list. Yeah, I, I, absolutely. I can try to address a few of those things F- from the initial consult note in the emergency department. Uh, they actually didn't include orthostatic vitals. I'd imagine kind of looking backwards, she probably would have had some degree of orthostatic drop, but we don't have that actually recorded from the original consult note. If you dig back through her records with ENT, they're, they kind of mentioned two different things. Um, they mentioned uh, recurrent episodes of otitis media. So they've wondered if uh, recurrent infections have played some role in her hearing loss, but otherwise they felt this was mostly age-related hearing loss, like uh, perspiscus, and they didn't think there was too much else going on with it. In terms of a gait assessment, um, there was no mention of abnormal gait in the initial uh, consult note. And when I eventually did see this patient, there was a no real significant um, gait disturbance that fits any pattern um, would be the, the, the normal gait of a 64-year-old. Touching a little bit more on uh, the reason for coming in was confusion, according to the patient's son. 
Um, you know, I say she's alert and oriented in that she wasn't so confused such that she didn't know where she was or what the date was or who she was. But the son just kind of felt like when he was having conversations with her, she was seemed um, like a little zoned out, like she was having trouble following the conversation. A couple of the things she was saying just didn't quite make sense, but it wasn't so altered that um, like it would affect her GCS or it would affect her ability to know um, where she was or something like that. And then I think just the a little bit more on these episodes of dizziness, um, it sounds like a lot of the time it was in keeping with orthostatic symptoms and kind of presyncope from that, getting up quickly, feeling a little bit lightheaded, a little bit dizzy. Maybe if she didn't drink enough water that day, she felt like she could fall or pass out. But like I said before, she never actually had any true syncopal episodes that we know of where she lost consciousness. I I think that touches on most of what you guys were asking about, but is there anything else I can clarify before we move on a little bit? Any visual complaints? No visual complaints. And no headaches. Uh, Denied ever having any headaches. Yeah, it's interesting to me how we could hear this story and be broad in our approach and yet suddenly focus on the one piece of information and and build a story backwards. And that's the hypernatremia. When When you tell us hypernatremia, we've all reversed the process and supported our thoughts with her symptoms that would lead to hypernatremia. I just, I'm fascinated by that. I think it definitely is one of the more striking things when going through the initial story and the initial investigations. Um, I think certainly for the team that saw her, that was one of the things that stood out most as well. All right. So what, what came next in her story? Well, I think definitely the team that saw her initially was uh, thinking along the same lines you guys were about um, potentially a diabetes insipidus. Um, so the next set of investigations they ordered for her were um, looking at well, her. Maybe, should, maybe before you tell us, I mean, it, it'd be fair for us to say, seeing this lady and giving this, the pieces of information you've given us, what might be most helpful for us sure. to unpack this? Absolutely. So I'm I'm in the question mode, not the answer mode. So I'll sit and listen. I mean, I would start off by saying, like, let's confirm that this lady has diabetes insipidus. You know, mm-hmm. let's have a look at her urine and so on, and let's let's try to ascertain, like, if she does. Let's say that she does. Let's try to ascertain whether this is central or renal or nephrogenic DRI, and then. And I'm going to bet because I just don't, I can't see from like her medications, for example, why she would have nephrogenic DI. I'm going to guess that she has central DI. Again, I realize I'm putting a lot of if, if, ifs here, but that's what I think is going to happen. And then if she has central DI, I mean, I think that usually that workup usually starts with some kind of neuroimaging. And then a broader question set around like, how likely is it, for example, that this woman has an inflammatory or infiltrative or or like late onset genetic disorder. I think that's that's kind of where I would start. So mm-hmm. I would do those, those like let's let's determine whether or not we think she has DI and then go from there. Yeah, that sounds good. Does that, does that sound wrong, Barry? Or I'm, no, obviously no, I'm no, happy I'm, to be taught here. That's that's. I'm not trying to teach you, and I'm not. Try, I'm just saying there's there's lots of different ways that, that I've thought about approaching. One of the simplest things would be to do nothing and just see <sighs> and and to see if just by having her in hospital with withholding water her sodium went up I mean, how you know that would that would certainly conf- confirm to me that she has a, a, a water wasting problem which would be diabetes insipidus so I think I might I think I may go for the like urine osmolality to uh, to try and assess for that 
I, I guess I, you're right, Barry. I would worry like letting her sodium drift up higher would be. We, I think we're already kind of in the spooky range, and we think we're already symptomatic from it. So I think I'd probably start checking her urine output, checking her urine osmolality. I would probably go ahead and order the imaging just to get it ready and cancel it if we figure out, oh, it's nephrogenic uh, diabetes insipidus. So I think that's probably my my order of operations here. Yeah. So uh, what, as I say, what I would do is I'd, I'd do nothing for six hours. I'd measure her sodium. And if it started to go up, that would certainly confirm to me that she has some form of diabetes insipidus if she's not drinking. So I wouldn't, I'd not let her drink. And I just watch and see if her sodium went to 160, 162, then I'd say that's what she has. I do a calcium and I would image her. Okay. What, what, what kind of imaging would you guys order? Well, Sir, I, I'm not sure that I, that I can speak specifically to the radiology, but it's either CAT scan or MRI in my mind. And probably the CAT scan would tell you if she got a big, she's got a big pituitary, a big fossa cella, and um, probably you need both. But I, I suppose that I don't know if I would choose MRI if I had the choice of either. I just don't know which is the best test. Yeah, I think I would probably order like an MR uh, pit and hypothalamus and. Um... I guess that's a little narrow, so I may also do a, a just a, a basic CT head, which I could get quite quickly. Probably combine those two to try and answer the question. I'm like, we're going to have to figure out how. Yeah, how she. Uh, we need to do a little bit more workup before we know definitively what imaging we need. I think, but uh, yeah, that's probably what I would end up ordering. Let's hear it. All right. Well, I think uh, the team that saw the patient was very much on the same track as you guys. They didn't decide to just do nothing. I think they initially gave her some free water in the emergency department to try and bring down the sodium a little bit. But they did right up front order the serum and urine uh, osmols and urine studies. Um, So her serum osmolality was 308. Um, Her urine osmolality was 54 and her urine sodium was 20. So, and then they went on the next day, kind of measured her urine osmols uh, on a couple of different occasions, along with the serum sodium and serum osmols. Um, So this is now the next morning. And after getting the free water overnight, the sodium was brought down to 150. Uh, And then over the course of the next about five hours, they withheld any free water and the sodium climbs from 150 to 151 to 152 to 153. Uh, while the urine osmols remained in the range of uh, 70 to 83. Um, And then after watching this for a few hours, they administered uh, desmopressin and the urine osmols jumped up to 400. Hmm. Okay, getting much closer here. Yeah. So um, I think the team at this point with this set of investigations was confident in a diagnosis of central diabetes insipidus, which I think is what you guys were thinking about. Um, So following that, they did go on to order an MRI of her head and it showed a six millimeter lesion at the superior aspect of the infundibulum uh, adjacent to the optic chiasm. And there was an absent posterior pituitary bright spot. They give a radiographic differential diagnosis. I don't know if you guys want to hear what um, the radiologist thought or uh, take a minute to think about what you guys think might be going on for this lady. Yeah, we, we, we could probably kick that around a little bit. Like Barry, what you had said earlier on that um, part of your workup would have included a calcium. Is this fitting with the diagnosis you were thinking of? No, I think uh, I, that would have helped me if I thought she had nephrogenic 
diabetes insipidus, but she's responding to desmopressin. It sounds like it's a central problem. Um, so, I mean, it, she'll probably get a calcium, but it wouldn't be one of the tests that I would do. I mean, given her country of origin, the ubiquitousness of tuberculosis and its presentations, I guess, in the differential uh, would include TB of her posterior pituitary. There's a whole wide, uh, a, a lot of other uh, disease states, none of which actually she seems to present with. I mean, she's she sounds like a metabolic syndrome with the exception of these these hearing problems. So, I mean, could she have a tumor? Could she have an inflammatory? Or she could have a variety of things, but that's kind of where I would be at right now. What are you thinking, Steph? Well, she's got a six millimeter something growing in there. So tumor versus like other infiltrative thing. What, what do you think? Yeah. Um, I think what I worry about is how easy is it going to be to to get tissue there? So I would probably, in neurosurgery or ENT, whoever is um, your pituitary surgeon, I'd, I'd wonder about getting some tissue as quickly as possible. But yeah, infection versus malignancy and then weird inflammatory uh, infiltrative disorders are still on the list. Like there's there's a bunch of weird stuff that we've actually talked about on the show a couple of times mm -hmm. that can affect like pit hypothalamus. Uh, so things like Langerhans cell histiocytosis and IgG4 and mm -hmm. sarcoid and, and this and that. A uh, bunch of weird stuff. Um, yeah. So I, I think like this is one that uh, unless we had some other very specific features to go with it, so uh, the only other kind of organ involved that we specifically know of right now, we know that she has a little bit of like linear opacities and atelectasis in the lungs, which is probably of, I, I can't tell if that's going to be of any real significance, but if we can't easily get tissue, then we should probably do some extensive imaging to look for where else, um, if this is an infiltrative disease, where else is it involving? I mean, we also haven't heard the the neuroradiologist's opinion, right? Like they might be, oh, truth. they might have like, you know, some slam dunk great answer for <laughs> us here. And then, and then we can sort of indirectly confirm that through some other means. I don't, yeah, I, I, I don't know that we're definitely getting tissue just yet, but again, like, let's, let's hear what the neuroradiologist thinks. Sure. I guess the only other thing I'd like to hear from about her imaging is in relation to her cranial nerves. Although you said they were normal, she still has deafness, and that's still a it's still a feature of her history. I don't know if it's related to this. So it's the only other neurologic, or potentially neurologic symptom. So uh, had, did they comment? Yeah, so um, they did not make any comments about the cranial nerves. So I think the presumption is that they appeared normal. The neuroradiologist who read this did not have a slam dunk. Um, they said that the differential diagnosis includes a tumor like a pituitary adenoma, metastatic disease, or a germinoma, or inflammatory lesions such as neurosarcoidosis or um, lymphocytic hypophysitis. Um, so they kind of uh, just listed the kind of shotgun approach that you guys listed as well. Boo. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's a bummer. That's a huge bummer. <laughs> so, so what would you guys do next if this person's sitting on your your ward and you get this report from the radiologist? Uh, there's some mention, biopsy, tissue, other people weren't, weren't quite so excited. Any other labs worth checking? You know, I think what what I would do in this is I'd probably, we know she has a posterior pituitary lesion and we know she has posterior pituitary dysfunction. We don't really know the state of her 
anterior pituitary. So I think at this point, I think I'd probably assess her anterior pituitary. That might give some sense of uh, the extension of the function or the dysfunction. Uh, the other thing I would do is um, I probably would do a TB skin test of, of some sort, and I probably would look for underlying markers of inflammation. I think the TB test, I don't think I'd do a skin test. I'd probably do an IGRA. Um, yeah. But I think that, that makes sense. I mean, we're, other, we're also looking for other clues, right? Like other involved organs. Yeah. These kids are tricky because, you, you know, you, like the more, the less clear uh, the path here, like we don't know where we're going, right? We don't know even what category of illness we're talking about. So the more tests we order, the more red herrings we're likely to encounter here. I, I find these cases very uncomfortable. I would probably shop this around to another uh, neuroradiologist and see if I can get a different uh, lead. And in the absence of that, I'd be looking through every other sort of organ here that we can that we can interrogate to see if there's some other clue that will point us towards either again like an, a malignant or or infiltrative or infectious etiology. Now, would you guys go? Like, so you mentioned TB skin test and IGRA. What about doing an LP? To, to try and get a culture off of that or a PCR off of that? You know, uh, I have to admit that, uh, I have to admit, that's the wrong way to put it. I have not investigated a pituitary lesion with an LP. It's, I don't think it's incorrect. I mean, I'm thinking about it, but I, I just, I'm reflecting. And I could say, well, I haven't investigated that many pituitary lesions, but it's pretty hard. And Danny, you mentioned initially getting tissue. I'm not really sure. I mean, there isn't much tissue to, 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 to begin with. I, I don't know how you, I don't know if neurosurgery would be supportive of trying to get that tissue. Um, I mean, if we went through the list of diseases that were already mentioned in the differential, there's really nothing. I mean, would you CT her chest to look to if she has a lesion there? Would you CT her chest, abdomen, and pelvis? Would you do, as Jeff says, you can, the more investigations, we seem to be we'd seem to be circling the wagons rather than actually specifically getting a diagnosis. So I'm not sure. Yeah, I, I mean, from from where I sit, I I would actually be very comfortable doing CT chest, abdo, pelvis because the big things on our list right now are malignancies based on her demographics and and potential infectious uh, risk TB. So I, I think I I think I would be happy to do that at this point. I think it's kind of time for the that scan. And and then, yeah, like if we see other things like retroperitoneal fibrosis, bing, like you, you, now you have a much narrowed differential. Um, if these linear opacities and atelectasis in the chest, which are uh, probably nothing, turn out to be something on a CT, uh, bing, you got like uh, something to work with there or maybe other sources of, of tissue to go after because you're right. Yeah, I, I'm sure it's a seems like a delicate area in the brain. So I'm sure we're not going to get a ton of buy-in unless it's a big inflammatory mass, um, which doesn't sound like it is. So I, I think I would be happy to do those things. Um, and uh, so I would do that. And yeah, you're right. Like, I don't think we generally investigate like any inflammatory lesion in the brain. We don't jump directly to LP, but I think like the test characteristics for IGRA and TB skin test concern me that if it was negative, I, I really wouldn't know what to do with that. And if it was positive, it still doesn't mean it's TB in the brain. So I, I think I would, I'd probably do two things like in, um, in tandem. 
just a, a very quick sort of practical point. Um, these, this is obviously not a common situation. Like this is not, you know, uh, someone walks in with community acquired pneumonia. This is an unusual problem. And so, you know, over the last 10 years, I've built a lot of relationships in the hospital with other physicians. And this is a case that I would be shopping around to people in the hallway, like, Hey, could I just run this thing by you? Totally. Um, because this is probably, you know, I'm a general internist. I'm not a superhero. Like I'm going to, some of these I'm going to figure out and some of them I'm not. And right now I, I don't want to be exposing this person to the dangers of my ignorance. I'm going to try to <laughs> sort of pull the wisdom of the crowd, the very smart crowd that I work with and, and just bounce this off some people. That's a great idea. Well, if I were in the hospital, I would be bouncing this off you too. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'd be stuck right here. So Andrew, what, uh, what happened? Sure. What happened next? You guys hit a lot of the next steps that the team decided to take. Um, Barry had yes. mentioned looking at the uh, anterior, anterior pituitary hormone. So that's actually what the team did next. TSH was normal at 2.95, but the T3 and T4 were on the low side. Uh, T4 was at 8.4 and T3 is 1.6. Prolactin, FSH, LS, LH were all normal. Uh, the AM cortisol was low, though, at 104. So following that, they went on to test an ACTH, which was undetectable. Uh, and then they went on to do a cortisol stim test in which the cortisol pre-ACTH was 110. 20 minutes post, it was 275. And 30 minutes post, it was 195. Um, so the team uh, felt these tests uh, were in keeping with uh, a degree of adrenal insufficiency. And they also wondered about the relatively low T3 and T4, and they wondered if there was a degree of uh, hypothyroidism as well. But so, like secondary adrenal insufficiency and secondary hypothyroidism. Correct. So the team did shop this around a little bit. Uh, they talked to endocrinology and like you had mentioned, Steph, um, they talked again with a different neuroradiologist. And this second neuroradiologist thought that just looking at the imaging, it was less consistent with an adenoma and he thought it looked more like an infiltrative process, um, but uh, hard to say based on imaging alone. Um, a discussion was had with neurosurgery about a biopsy. They didn't love the location and the size of this lesion. They thought it was relatively on the high risk side. So endocrinology decided to treat this patient for panhypopituitarism. Essentially, they started him on uh, thyroid replacement, uh, cortisol, and uh, DDAVP for the diabetes insipidus. And they did do CT chest abdo pelvis, which um, was relatively unremarkable. Those findings commented on the lung x-ray didn't really pan out to anything on the CT scan. And in the chest abdomen pelvis, there was no lymphadenopathy, no other obvious lesions, nothing else to explain what was going on. Just some of the other changes you'd expect in the 64-year-old. She had a bit of a fatty liver and, and um, no other significant changes. So at this point in time, the patient was actually sent home with follow-up with endocrinology. And endocrinology kind of sat on her a little bit. They debated uh, whether to pursue a biopsy or not, whether to empirically treat with steroids and see what happened. So I, I don't know if you guys have any thoughts about that before I advance to the, the next step of the case. Yeah, like I find it disturbing. I, you know, I, I think this is the nature of, of how in, inpatient has to work. Like when the patient is well, it is time to move to outpatient investigation. But 
um, man, it, it would totally pain me to send someone home before I like knew what, what weirdness is going on inside their brain. And everyone has a different comfort level with that. Obviously, uh, can't stay in hospital for forever, but, uh, uh, yeah, I'm a bit, I'm a bit uncomfortable with steroids having ruled out nothing. Yeah. I mean, it's, so, you're really going to, no, I wouldn't your, do that yet. You're really going to mess up your workup, aren't you? Like totally. Danny, you're, you're here the expert in, uh, vasculitis and you know, I'm sure more about histiocytosis than I do. And, and IgG4 for that matter, you know, do you think it would be wrong at this point to sort of indirectly test for some of those things? Like, you know, you sort of get a little bit of blood work and see what that shows, get some ANCAs, get some IgG4 levels. Is that crazy? Or is that, do you think that's just going to take us straight to red herring town? No, I, 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 well, I think it's totally appropriate. And then what comes back, we're going to have to contextualize, but if we don't look, we'll never find it. And like before we label this as idiopathic, um, lymphocytic hypophysitis or idiopathic infiltrative disease. Like there's a big list of stuff that we need to look for. Mm. And we've done part of that workup, but, but we really do need to expand it. Um, so, uh, you know, certainly I don't know what was done in hospital, but I totally agree. I think we need, we need some of those tests and, you know, I, I think we can debate at another time, like the value of sending ACE levels, the value of ACEs on an LP. Totally agree. I, I still do send that test if I'm worried about sarcoid, calcium, vitamin D level. Um, I would get that LP, uh, if not as an inpatient, then as an outpatient. Uh, we're looking for weirdness. Like we're looking for something else to an, another data point to help us triangulate what's going on here. Mm-hmm. So I'm not quite ready for steroids. All that being said, like I, I'm not a hypophysitis <laughs> expert and endocrinology is. So maybe this is like a standard thing. Like maybe it's like 90% of the time it's idiopathic. Try a trial of steroids and see what happens. Maybe that's like a, a reasonable pattern of practice and I just don't know enough about, uh, you know, the, the endo side of this case, but yeah, I agree with you, Steph. Yeah. This is kind of like a, a black diamond or double black diamond workup, isn't it? Like you, <laughs> like you could, in, you could do some of these expert maneuver here. You'd be ordering these maybe shotgun tests, but you'd have to sort of put on your big boy pants. And when those tests come back, you'd have to be comfortable ignoring the ones that you don't think are relevant and, and maybe repeating the ones that you really want to be sure. Like this is, this is not that, not that easy. You know, the other thing about giving this person steroids is that of the things that we're considering, many of them will be steroid responsive. You know, like we call something, maybe we call something idiopathic, idiopathic hypophysitis, but you know, if it's vasculitis or IgG4 or whatever, or sarcoid, those things will all respond to steroids to some extent. Yeah, so like the the therapy doesn't tell us anything yeah. about the diagnosis. Yeah, and so we're, I feel like when we treat things empirically, when we still have a really big list and we haven't even nailed the category, we're kicking the can down the road for us to deal with later when it's kind of harder to figure out. We've yeah. muddied that water in a way that we can't go back to square one. Yeah. But but yeah, totally. Like this is a case I would shop around internally too. Like within rheumatology, like I'd chat with a hematologist who likes histiocytoses be like all right like i'm getting this person worked up like what other tests do you guys think i should add to this this is my list what else yeah yeah um to try and just get it done all at the beginning you know we obviously have to be careful about pre-test post-test probability but i'm not sure that that theory applies well when we're talking about extremely rare diseases 
on which like it's it it's really hard to have a pretest probability for something that's exceedingly rare. Yeah. So we have to look, I think. So yeah, yeah I, I would I would start that process now before treatment. Okay, let's go. Let's hear it. All right. So so what happened with this patient is that they were sent home and followed by endocrinology and they treated with the hormone replacement. And they were hemming and hawing. They were, if you read through their notes, they're thinking about steroids, but they actually never pulled the trigger. Interestingly, they didn't go fishing as much as you guys are talking about. They didn't send like the IgG4 or the vasculitis workup or things like that. And I think they were still fully hadn't made up their mind when um, the case takes a little bit of a turn. So this is about three or so months after the discharge and endocrinology still hadn't made their decision. The patient actually represented to hospital. Uh, and I don't, get, I don't want to get too caught up on this, but they in their initial representation, they came in with right upper quadrant pain, elevated liver enzymes, cholestatic pattern, and was diagnosed with acute cholecystitis. Um, we don't need to talk too much about that, but she had her gallbladder taken out and was discharged home from general surgery. Uh, and then four days after her uh, surgery, she represents to the emergency department with confusion. Uh, and internal medicine gets a call for someone with delirium and hypernatremia. Oh, God. Uh, and this is actually when, I, in real life, is when I uh, met this patient for the first time. Um, so representing to hospital... Her physical exam is largely similar to what it was when we first met her three months ago. Uh, the major difference is now she's quite a bit more confused. She's alert and oriented times two. Her GCS is 14. Um, her eyes are closed. Um, she's a little bit drier on exam. JVP is one to two centimeters above the sternal angle, but otherwise no focal neurologic symptoms still. Um, gait's still normal, things like that. Um, her relevant labs are she does have a bit of a white count now at 16.2 and her sodium's quite a bit elevated at uh, 172. So before I go f- further about what happened to this patient, I don't know if you have any thoughts about this representation following her cholecystectomy. I, so- I wonder if she was, I, I, I am curious if, um, if they did any stress dosing of her steroids during the uh, coli. There's no mention of that in the discharge summary from general surgery. But even then, you wouldn't come back with a sodium of 170, right? Nope. It's like, so uh, it definitely feels like the, it's worsening of the hypophysitis, whatever the cause. And um, you said she's on cortisol already. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm just worried about advancement of the central process. How was her DI being treated this whole time? She was on intranasal DDAVP. Okay. And she, uh, so, so maybe there was a little gap in time there where she didn't get it or something after her surgery or. I think there's a possibility that that contributed to some extent. I mean, <clears throat> to me, this, this is, this is a, the nursing home tale, right? You go and you, you go home, you don't eat, you go to bed for four days and your sodium's 170. And so she didn't get, somehow she didn't get free water. Or, or her DDAVP. Or both, yeah. but I mean, she's not getting, so she's had a coli and she goes home and, and I wouldn't make more of the advancement of her disease until we re-corrected her, her, I suppose we'd image her again, but, um, I think it's, it's just maybe a consequence of the thing of just sort of not taking care of things. That's reasonable. So you guys are leaning more towards correct the sodium before repeat imaging? 
Well, it's like, I mean, let's talk to, you know, let's fix the sodium. Let's talk to her, figure out what happened after she left the hospital, after her coli, talk to her family, like, was she getting her medications? It's, it's, it seems early to invoke, uh, like either progression of disease or treatment failure if we don't have those details. I mean, when you have, when you have, um, posterior and anterior pituitary, I suppose one of the things that can uncover the posterior pituitary dysfunction is if you give steroids and, uh, and, let this creep away from you but yeah. that's but again she's on replacement steroids so i'm assuming she's getting some uh steroid hormone uh some cortisone or whatever so again i i think well, i do what other people have just said so um when internal medicine saw her in the emergency department they did treat the hypernatremia they gave her free water they gave her ddavp and kept a close eye on things it sounds like following her surgery, she was kind of laid up in bed, um, wasn't getting access to as much water. She should have, may have missed a couple of doses of DDAVP. And as they treated the sodium, she did start to clear up a little bit. But interestingly, kind of in keeping with what Danny had mentioned, um, the emergency room physician did order a CT scan of her head um, right up front. I think they, they probably might not have even known about her history, but just a confused person order a CT head. Uh, and the CT head was relatively interesting. Um, so reading through the results of the CT head at this point in time, they said, allowing for differences in technique, there's slight increase in the size of the supracellar lesion um, with slight increase in the degree of mass effect. And additionally, uh, there is a new aggressive process centered on the right mastoid air cells with cortical breach in the region of the right transverse sinus and mastoid process. Oh boy. The uh, radiologist goes on to say that a chronic inflammatory process could have this appearance, but given the short interval since previous imaging, this is concerning for uh, an aggressive process. So um, I'll, I'll maybe pause, pause there and see if you guys have any thoughts about um, what the scan uncovered. So to me, this in, in the one case that I've had with histiocytosis X, the, the Langerhans disease, the, the diagnosis was made two years after, after a year after this man, the man that I'm referring to was treated for osteomyelitis of a cervical <laughs> spine, which, which never turned out to be osteomyelitis, but turned out to be this inflammatory process. So when you describe a destructive bone lesion in the mastoid, yeah. I think to me, the money's in trying to get the bone lesion and seeing what the process is. Yeah, I agree. It's suspicious. At this, I mean, at this point, you know, tumor versus, I mean, so I can't imagine what the infection would be there. Um, obviously, TB or something like that. But yeah, for me, this has gone more clearly into the sort of tumor versus histiocytosis or other uh, infiltrative disease ballpark. That's that's interesting. I was still I was still worried about. I think we, we're all worried about infection still, but I think like the speed almost made me wor more worried about infection. Maybe that's more of like a triage brain sort of just ranking the the scariest thing first before we would give this person steroids. But uh, yeah, I still think I want that LP. I and I think that I would. We're gonna go after tissue now. Hopefully, but I still think I would uh, try and get uh, something to culture quickly. So I guess a question that we had the, at the time when we were seeing this patient and I'll maybe pose to you guys, this new aggressive lesion in the mastoid, do you think it's related to the pituitary lesion, unrelated? Uh, 
what are your guys' thoughts on that? Related. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I hadn't even thought of that question. I guess that would that feels like too big a coincidence for it to be unrelated. So I'd say related also. I think that's the direction we ultimately lean towards. So the team got some opinions of some surgical services at this point in time to consider a tissue diagnosis. Uh, it's interesting you bring up the LP, Danny, because that's not something that I don't think we had thought about at the time. I think we thought about more going direct to the source at this point in time. That's probably because it's a bad idea. <laughs> it's not a bad idea. Um, it's an idea. It's technically an idea. It's an idea. So um, it was actually, it was ENT surgery we ended up talking to because of the proximity to the mastoid bone there. Um, and we're in kind of in discussions to set up a biopsy. And ENT actually suggested to us to empirically treat with antibiotics and antifungals. They said looking at the scans, they were worried about something malignant or some sort of weird invasive infectious process like fungal or pseudomonal. So I was wondering what you guys thought you'd do in that situation if you'd empirically cover with antibiotics or if you'd kind of wait and see and get a biopsy first. I mean, we think this lady's immunocompetent, right? This never really came, it never crossed my mind to think that, I mean, let's say you're mildly immunocompromised from diabetes. I mean, so so really bad diabetics or, or people who are otherwise profoundly immunosuppressed are more likely to get mucormycosis. That would be an example of like a head and neck infection that can get really out of control. But I mean, it's, it's really rare. And, and I think, you know, the, in the few times that I've seen that people are otherwise immunosuppressed, but even then, yeah, I mean, the, the antibiotics are so toxic, I, uh, whatever it is, it needs to be biopsied like ASAP. Yeah, I agree with Steph. I mean, I, I, the differential isn't any narrower by the imaging. It's, it's still the helpful part of the imaging is it gives us a more accessible place to get tissue. And then, and then we'd be talking about an invasive fungal infection unrelated to a like pituitary failure issue just a few months prior. Like it's pretty bad luck. Totally. And also like this person's presentation, sorry, assuming that, that all of these things are part of the same picture, her symptoms progressed over the course of three months initially. And now we're like, we've got to be six, seven months later, like an invasive fungal infection that's just been sitting there for that long. And then. I don't know. That story feels a little weird for uh, for fungal infection. So not well, the only thing is is that. is that she just has. I mean, we heard and we don't know the duration, but I'm still coming back to the deafness and her ear infections, which she's had recurrently. So I suppose she could have had something grumbling along for for some time, and this is a, just a continued manifestation of that present of the deafness of the ear problems and the pituitary as well. So I don't know. It it doesn't help us. Even if we built that story, I still think we need tissue. Mm -hmm. Tissue, please. Yeah. So uh, we were of a similar mindset. We actually talked with infectious disease. And when they heard the story, they were very much on the same page as you guys. They felt um, this wasn't really in keeping with a fungal infection. The time course didn't fit. Um, so we did not empirically treat with antibiotics or antifungals. So uh, after a little bit of planning, ENT did go ahead and biopsy the lesion for us. Uh, and before I tell you what the biopsy showed, uh, I'm not sure if anyone wants to hazard any guesses or thoughts about what the biopsy might show. <laughs> well, the closest I'll get, why don't I go first? The closest I'll get, the biopsy showed tissue. 
And that's as specific <laughs> as I can be because we've already been through the possibilities. Now, I, it's just a guess. <laughs> Thanks, Barry. <laughs> Uh, I feel like I, I, no matter what I guess, I'm wrong. But uh, what am I going to guess? I'm going to guess histiocytosis. Yeah. Um, well, there's different ways to approach a guess like this, aren't there? There's like, why is this case being presented to us as a podcast? So it's going to be fancy, <laughs> I think. Plus, there's other clues that Andrew has laid out here. Like, would you guys treat with antibiotics? So I feel like we we fell into a trap there by not treating with antimicrobials. So I think he was trying to foreshadow to us that this is an infection. So I'm going to go with um, this lady is incredibly unlucky. She's picked up a superimposed infection. It's mucor, and uh, she's about to lose half her face as it gets debrided. Barry, any uh, any change to your guess or sticking with it? Well, I yeah, I think both of your guesses are very reasonable, but uh, and but they're still guesses. And I I don't I mean I don't have any better guesses than you've had and. Let's hear. Um, I don't. I mean, let's hear what the, yes. the tissue shows. Yeah. yeah. So um, they got a piece of tissue from the mastoid process, and it showed uh, uh, abundance eosinophils. And in addition to that, uh, typical Langerhans cells with coffee bean nuclei. Nice so, way to go, no Danny. Freaking way. So uh, yeah, Danny, you were uh, right on the right track there. You had, you mentioned it pretty early on as well. Lucky uh, guess. So um, the pathologist was quite convinced that the sample was Langerhans cell histiocytosis. Wow. And um, following the biopsy, she actually went on to have a PET scan to further work this up. And the PET scan showed uh, FDG avid destruction within the right temporal bone and the lateral aspect of the right mastoid process which is compatible with the biopsy proven Langerhans cell histiocytosis. Um, there was also FDG avid uptake within the supracellar region of the pituitary, which they said was suspicious for CNS involvement of the Langerhans cell histiocytosis. And somewhat randomly, there was also uptake in the posterior right femur, um, suspicious for an additional focus of disease in the right femur. No pain there, though? Never complained of pain in the right leg or anything along the lines to suggest uh, a reason to have gone looking there sooner. Wow. That is so as I said, I've, yeah, you know, I've, the, the case I saw was, is, had the same differential with the destructive bone lesion that looked like osteomyelitis that was treated for a year yeah. for osteomyelitis. And so this is compatible. The, the nuance, and I still follow this person, but the, the nuance is tell us what therapy was prescribed for this lady. So what ended up happening with this lady is she was referred on to a hematologist with interest in infiltrative diseases. Um, so she went on to have uh, chemotherapy with cytarabine. Um, so she ended up getting six cycles of cytarabine and um, it looks like she's actually responded quite well to that therapy. They've been following her with serial PET scans um, and it, they feel like at this point in time that uh, she's in remission in terms of her Langerhans cell histiocytosis. Some interesting things when I look back at this case, um, Langerhans cell is a pretty rare disease and CNS Langerhans is even rarer. But if you look in a textbook at CNS Langerhans, um, 
diabetes insipidus is the classic neurologic manifestation of Langerhans cell, which I thought was interesting. There's a couple case reports of hearing loss related to Langerhans cell. So I'm I'm still not sure whether she just really did have age-related hearing loss or whether somehow that was grumbling for a while and we didn't pick up on it earlier. Do you think it's, has it improved at all with the treatment? Um, do you know what? I'm trying to think about the follow-up notes I've looked through. They haven't made mention of changes in the hearing. If you do find out, that would be great to just pass that along and we'll we'll share it in a future episode. I can I can se- I can send a message to the the person following her and see if they can let me know about the hearing. You know what's sure, interesting yeah. is that the when the endocrinologist decided to treat with prednisone uh, or some kind of steroid or whatever, I mean that could have gone on a long time, right? Like this this is a disease theoretically responsive to prednisone. I don't think it is. Um, I don't know enough about. I never treated this person. I don't. I'd have to stand. I could stand corrected, but I think it'd be one of the diseases that probably you'd really be, as everyone said, be in the soup. You wouldn't know what was happening. Yeah. You know, like it's interesting because we develop like different different algorithms and different treatment protocols to say like, okay, if you present this way um, with this type of angioedema, it's very unlikely that there's an underlying cause, so just treat it. And I I think I I have always felt a little bit uncomfortable with that conceptually. I think it's it's practical. Because if you work everyone up for every problem they ever have and you send the broad, crazy workup, you're going to get tons, you're going to catch a lot of boots and not know what to do with it. Um, And it's hard to balance being pragmatic with the fact that there are terrible diseases in the universe that look just like everything else. Mm -hmm. And I, I don't know, like, I guess we have to develop like our, our nose for weird cases that will push us to like investigate earlier. I don't know that like there was anything the teams could have done earlier on to solve this one very early, but, but at least the comment was like when you consulted neurosurgery, they said, ah, it's, it's too dangerous to, to do the biopsy or it's a risky location. And now in retrospect, like at least we can say like, well, well, it's also risky to not do the test. It's also risky sometimes to not do the procedure because we end up with more advanced disease later on. And that can be just impossible to balance. Um, so this is this is a really interesting case. Thanks so much, Andrew. Uh, no problem. Thanks for having me on. Great case, yeah, Andrew. Thanks, Andrew. Thanks, that, was, that was really good. I think the other point that I think was made, which was just probably when you don't know what to do, don't do anything. Um, I mean, I think that that's a time. Time helped us here. I mean, she represented with with worsening diabetes insipidus, which probably wasn't related to anything more except the her going home after her surgery, but gave us the opportunity to immature again and to reevaluate. I, I often tell my team the two best doctors in the world are Google and Time. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, I agree. I think I think it's better to you know the the errors of commission. If we had given her steroids or done this or that, I mean, who knows where we would be? That's a great case, man. I need a cigarette. <laughs> <laughs> thanks a lot andrew i, I really you. appreciate you uh you preparing that for us uh no and, problem uh, it was a lot of fun thanks for having me we are supported by the saint paul's hospital foundation we're produced by nikki thorpe from bronick consulting i'm daniel ennis thanks so much for listening and we'll have another episode out to you guys in two weeks or so take care mm-hmm.